Hey, good morning. Open your Bibles to John chapter 21. I want to thank everyone who's here in person, all of you joining us online. Thank you for participating in this worship experience with us today. We're in a series right now called Empty Tomb. It's going to go for seven weeks, two more weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about the ascension of Jesus and why it matters for us today. And in two weeks, we're going to celebrate Pentecost as it's also a Sunday that we pray over all of our mission efforts throughout the summer. But today I want to focus on what has become one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, and that's John chapter 21. What I want to do, over the, over, what I have done over the last few weeks and in this series, is to help us see how the resurrection of Jesus impacts everything. This changes everything. That there's nothing in this world that God doesn't want to bring to life. Last week I walked you through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how the resurrection stories, what, is, what they all agree on, and how they are all unique and how they tell the story. If you were not here last week, I encourage you just to jump on the podcast and listen to it. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, how they tell the story of the resurrection, one thing you need to see is this. Is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they talk about the resurrection of Jesus, it is not about what the resurrection of Jesus does for you. It is about what the resurrection of Jesus did for Jesus. So later on throughout the New Testament, Paul and Peter and other, other letters that are written, they're going to talk a lot about the impact of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for your life, like how this blesses you. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't do that. What they do is they keep the focus on the resurrected Jesus. And why I think this is important is that sometimes faith can become about what God does for you, where faith begins and what sustains faith is you keeping your eyes on having faith in what God has done for Jesus. It's not just what God has done for you, it's what God has done for Jesus. And in doing this, it keeps our eyes open, it keeps our, our hearts open to the bigger story. Because there are so many things happening in the world today that keep us from being reminded of the bigger story that we are a part of. Because there's some crazy things happening in the world today, right? Have you seen gas prices recently? Some of you are online today because you could not afford to come to church, I'm convinced, all right? I was in California two weeks ago uh, speaking at an event, and I filled up my rental car. Gas was $7.09, but we all know they're crazy out in California, right? Grocery store prices, inflation. Have you looked at your portfolio recently? And I encourage you, just don't. Just don't do it. The temperatures in the month of May have set records. It feels like every day. Today's a beautiful day, but... Usually May is that month that reminds us more of April than it does August. It like prepares us for summer, but this year May like slapped us in the face with its heat. And I still live in a neighborhood where pizza does not, pizza places will not deliver pizza to my neighborhood in Binghampton. It's the little things that I hope will change one day, but they haven't. The Supreme Court is soon, maybe, they will make a decision on Roe versus Wade. And some of you, you read about this story, you pray these prayers, and I get it because we serve a God who is a God of life. And sometimes we get wrapped up in things that are happening throughout the world. And I think it breaks the heart of God anytime there is anything that is kept from thriving in life. And I know over the last week, we have seen a lot of stories of the shooting that happened in the church in California last Sunday, or the story you've probably heard a lot more of was the shooting that happened in Buffalo where a young white man who I would just say had an evil ideology, thought he could be a hero by just taking out innocent black people. And I know for me and my family to sit and to try to process a story like that, there's probably nothing like some of the non-white members in this church, how you are having to process stories like that. And I could go on about other stories and, and wars that are happening throughout the world, and that's just the events happening in the world, not just the problems and distractions that you are facing in your own life. So here is what... 
resurrection power reminds us of. Is that when resurrection power takes hold of a person, it takes hold of a church, it makes us hopeful, not fearful. When resurrection power takes hold of people and takes hold of a church, it doesn't cause us to shrink back from the world, but to press into the world. This is what resurrection power does. So I want to walk you through John chapter 21 this morning, and it's basically two narratives. They're basically two stories, and most people think they're stories that connect. Like there's one, and then the second story is built off that first story, and then you get the closing to the Gospel of John. And there is a question and a statement in John 21, and I want to give it to you right now. And this is also going to be here in a few minutes when we come to communion together as a church. This is going to be the question and the statement from Jesus that I want to guide us around the table today. And the question is this, and you find this in John 21, do you love me more than these? And Jesus is asking this of Peter, do you love me more than these? And maybe it's a question Jesus is asking of you today. Do you love me more than your family? Do you love me more than your inner circle? Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me above everything else? And the, sec- or the statement is, follow me. Which is the phrase Jesus used to invite people into relationship and is the last phrase you read of Jesus in the Gospels. It's the phrase that just keeps coming. No matter where you are in life, keep following me. So the first narrative in John 21 is in verses 1 through 14. And what I want you to see, first of all, is in verse 1 and in verse 14, the same word is used of what Jesus is doing. And in most of your versions, it doesn't have the same word, but it's the same word that is used. And I think this may be John letting you know that what Jesus came to do in this story is to reveal himself to his followers. In verse 1, you got it. Jesus shows up at the Sea of Galilee, and he was there to reveal himself. In verse 14, it tells you this is the third time after the resurrection that Jesus has revealed himself. What he is doing is he is revealing himself as the Son of God. He's revealing himself as the resurrected one. He is the one who died and is now alive. He is revealing himself. Jesus delights in helping people know who he is in deeper ways. In verse 2, what you have is John lists seven people who went out to fish. Now, maybe there were only seven. Maybe seven was a number of completion, which is why John used it. And maybe there were more, but he lists the names of seven people who went out to fish. And then what you read in the story is this. In verse 3. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, excuse me, got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. I want to make a note right here in verse 3 because sometimes the way people teach this story or think about this story is that now Peter and his friends, they had maybe given up on what it meant to be an apostle of Jesus or maybe they had gone back to their former way of life. There's nothing in the Gospel of John that says that. There's nothing that John lets you know in John 21 that they have gone back to their former way of life and now they've, picked, uh, they, they've become fishermen again and this is their way they're going to make money. I, I think John's just telling a story saying, hey, there was just a day and they were hungry so they went out to get some fish. So they went out to fish and a few of them, they, well, I say they were good at it. Maybe they weren't, all right, because most stories we have of them, they're not catching anything. But here's what happens in verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And no, they answered. And he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And let me point this out. I don't think John chapter 21 is a chapter about obedience. But I do think right here there may be something someone needs to hear. 
that there are times where there are unexpected things that can happen because of your obedience to Christ. That here in this moment, they are fishing and all Jesus told them to do is take your nets and put them on the other side. And they could have responded by saying, we are professional fishermen. Our dads were, were professional fishermen. Whoever you are, we don't know if you know what you're talking about or not, but we think we know what we're doing. But out of obedience to whatever the whoever the voice was, they did it. And there are times where maybe we are so set on keeping our nets on one side of the boat that Jesus may be saying, hey, it's time for you to put them on the other side of the boat. And I'm not saying that if you do this, it promises that wealth is coming your way or better health. But who knows what kind of fruit may happen when you are obedient to Christ. They're obedient to Christ. They catch a bunch of fish. And then what happens in verse 7, it's almost in parentheses the way the story is told, is then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Literally, Peter was fishing naked. Now, one day when Peter and I get a hangout, hopefully at some point, like there are a lot of stories I want to hear Peter talk about or retell that we know or questions I may have. And at some point in that conversation, I'm going to be like, dude, I just got this question about like how John tells the story in John 21. Like, is this, was this just a one-time thing or is this how you would fish? Was this, was this a regular thing for you? I, and I hope there is nobody here today or watching online that you were thinking, isn't that how everybody fishes? Like, what's wrong? What, what's so silly about that? And then he puts his clothes on to jump in the water. Now, you got to love it if John really is the Apostle John, one of Peter's close friends, like when he's writing his gospel, like for him just to put that detail in there, which is really not a detail any of us need to know. He's like throwing Peter under the bus, like, hey, we just want you to know this day, here's how Peter, here's how he was fishing. He puts on his clothes, he jumps in the water because he knows it's the voice of Jesus. And then here's what you read in verse 8. The other, dis <clears throat> other disciples followed him in the boat towing a net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some hush puppies, red lobster biscuits, and garlic Texas toast. Now, <clears throat> there are moments you just got to trust that the preacher knows his Greek, and I want you to know some of that. Same. All right, I just got to believe that Jesus is the chef, is a Jesus who had some flavor, and he's not going to offer a bland breakfast to his followers, all right? There's fish and there's bread. And there's charcoal, which will be a really interesting note here in just a moment. In verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And let's stop there just for a moment. There are a few things about this. One, you're told it was 153 fish. And this has baffled people for years because you have church fathers like Jerome and church fathers like Augustine. Like they could not just think that like they couldn't, they had to try to wrap their minds around what the 153 is. So you could read about all different theories of what the 153 is or some people who believed then that there were 153 species of fish that were in the Sea of Galilee. And people want to know like why is that number there? Like what does 153 mean? And I, I don't think we'll ever really know, all right? Secondly, Notice that in this story, the nets do not break. Earlier in the Gospels, when Jesus performs a miracle and they catch so many fish, their nets break. And I think here, maybe John wants you to know that the Gospel of Jesus and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, this is sustainable. This doesn't break. This is strong. This will sustain you throughout eternity. This time, the nets don't break. And John also tells you 
that Jesus had charcoal, a charcoal fire, which is the second time you read about a charcoal fire in the Gospels. The other time is when Jesus was at Caiaphas' house the night he was betrayed. And there was a charcoal fire outside and Peter was around it, and that is where Peter denied Jesus three times. And now for Jesus, there is a charcoal fire where he's about to have another conversation with Peter. Because I think this becomes the question, if you go to this next slide, this becomes the question of John 21. What is Jesus going to do with Peter? He's denied Jesus, right? Betrayed him. For Peter, there was probably a feeling in his life of failure. Maybe he had lost confidence. What was he going to become? I think he believed in Jesus. But was he ever going to risk again? I remember a few years ago, I placed in front of you, this, it's a fairly new phobia. I think this phobia is only about 20 years old, and it's called a tiki phobia. And a tiki phobia is a fear of failure and a fear of letting people down. And it's a phobia that has taken off with the younger generation, where they've had parents or coaches or teachers who have placed a lot of expectations on them, and I am all for ambition, and I'm all for trying to like raise people up and encourage them and help them to live into something better. But there are some who have had so much pressure placed on them that what they suffer from is a tiki phobia. It's a fear of failure. It's a fear of letting people down. And people who suffer from this phobia, what happens is they will go through life and they will never take a risk. They will always play it safe because they don't want to fail and they also don't want to let other people down. So what happens when there's a person who is overcome by a tiki phobia? Or the question I like to ask sometimes is what happens to a church when a church is taken over by a tiki phobia? Where there's a phobia of letting people down or a fear of failure to where a church may not take any risks with God. And I think Peter may have been in a place where some atikophobia was setting in. Have you ever been in a place, and I think a lot of us can connect with Peter, right? Been in a place where there's been failure in your life or a loss of confidence and you believe in Jesus, you believe in the resurrection, but you're not really sure how you're going to risk in the future or what faith is going to look like for you or if or, or why God may want to use you in the future. So then Jesus, it doesn't say this in the Bible, it doesn't say this in the story, but it's almost like they're all there eating breakfast and they're eating their fish and the bread and then Jesus pulls Peter over to the side or somehow Peter and, and uh, Jesus end up, just the two of them, and here's what's going to happen in this story is that Jesus is going to ask a question, Peter's going to have a response, and then Jesus gives him an assignment. There's going to be question, response, assignment three different times. And in verse 15, it says this, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. And the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you were wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. 
It is like Jesus in this moment chooses to reconvert him all over again. Aren't you glad we serve a God of second chances? A God of multiple second chances. I was at the Hope Works breakfast a few weeks ago, and there was this testimony that was shown to us. And I, that morning, I said, I'm showing that video to the Sycamore View Church on May 22nd. So direct your eyes to the screen and hear the story of a God of second chances. I couldn't be more excited about where I'm at in life now uh, because I just didn't think it... I couldn't be more excited about where I'm at in life now uh, because I just didn't think it was possible that I'd ever get there. I, I never would have imagined I would get to live a life like this from where I started. I'm Josh Smith, the founder and CEO of the Fourth Purpose Foundation. Yeah, so I, I grew up in a town right outside of Nashville, uh, Tennessee, and life for me growing up as a kid, my father was gone at two. My, uh, him and my mother divorced and he moved out of state. You know, not having a father active in your life, you know, present is, uh, I mean, it's tough, it's tough on a kid. You, you really don't even realize how tough maybe even until later uh, on in life. I don't know the exact age, but uh, my mother ended up marrying someone else and, um, you know, we were excited to have somebody playing that father role part. We moved out into a nicer place to live. Um, but this guy didn't bargain for kids. And, you know, at around 11 years old, I was questioned by child services. They came into my school. They took my uh, clothes, uh, had me stripped down to my underwear and took pictures of my body um, to look at uh, what was going on. And, um, you know, so that was a really tough period for me, wanting the love of a father, but not really you know, not really understanding what was going on with the abuse and, and those things. And so I, I ran away from home. My, my first time visiting a juvenile facility was around 11 or 12 when they took me um, after I had ran away. I think it was the first time. As a juvenile, you're with that group of friends, you're young. Most of them all had a story as well. They're all, they're all we're all in similar fashions, right? And. And then you just start trying to struggle and figure it out all together. And it's kind of like, all right, the world's not giving me anything, so I'm gonna take it. You know, you live and you think there's no consequence coming, and then next thing you know, consequences come. And at the age of 16, I was charged with 10 felonies, uh, bur all bur burglaries and uh, theft charges. By the time I was 21, I had met some people and was involved in drugs and, um, was selling uh, uh, marijuana and uh, cocaine. By the time that all was said and done, at the age of 21, I was charged and convicted for a kilo of cocaine and 150 pounds of, of marijuana. I was rated the most culpable out of our entire criminal organization. The, the federal government did not like my entrepreneurial abilities and they decided to shut my enterprise down. A very short time later, I walk into federal prison in an orange jumpsuit and just a, just a handful of things, thinking that my entire life had just got left behind and, and was over. The turning point for me when I was in prison was uh, just an interaction that I had with God. Uh, I was you know, in my bunk. I had just cussed out a guy who was a Christian who came up, was nice, was talking to me, and uh, 
and I just said all kinds of bad things to him in front of everybody because again, I wanted, you know, I was tough, I was hard, I was, I was the person, you know, that could do this, no problem, but inside, I was, I was dying. I just remember that night, just getting to a place and calling out to God and just saying, here I am. And, uh, and, and then I went to sleep. And, you know, no bells and whistles went off. My toes didn't tingle, you know, nothing like that. The next day was different. And, you know, as I walked and as I did things, the things that used to not bother me before bothered me. And so conviction started setting in. And, uh, and then I just got to see God moving. And I would see just little things and little things, which would make me press in more to Him. I was fortunate enough also to be at a place that they had locked up a lot of white collar criminals, a lot of people with tax evasion or things like that. Again, I'd never been exposed to professional people like that that, that, that that had that kind of money or success or education. So I began to just glean from them and I would learn from them. A banker, I'd learn about banking. A financial person, I'd learn about finances. So I began to read and I began to just consume these books. And at first it was hard. I didn't understand the concepts. I didn't understand the words. I didn't understand, you know, real estate terms or things like that. But you just keep reading and you keep growing. And so, uh, you know, really prison time for me shifted into an educational time rather than just a, a doing time. The day I got out of prison, uh, my wife was there to pick me up. I ended up going to work for $6 an hour, struggling just saving my money. Uh, but I continued to educate myself. I continued to, to, to invest in myself. You know, they say luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I just wanted to make sure that I was prepared if that opportunity came along. I went on to start a little small business. I'm fortunate enough to have a great family, a wife and now four children. Um, that, that little business that I started from nothing with the knowledge I'd learned in prison um, ended up growing to a company of 100 and, over 150 employees and you know a lot of revenue and, and ended up selling that. Um, I'm involved in other businesses, on a lot of real estate. Um, again, all of those things, the principles that I learned while I was in prison, not on the streets. I didn't go to college, none of those things, just from that time in prison. And so my life now is, is amazing. I mean, uh, amazing. And now I get to focus on things just like this, you know, that, that encouragement, how do we make prison a place of transformation? And so there's, that's what I get to wake up every day, think about. And um, one of the things I love doing is just kind of, you know, flicking my finger in the face of society that would say that I could, somebody like me could never make it, um, you know, and, and, and now I did, I have. And, and I like to encourage other people that they can too, if you want to. If you want it bad enough, you can. Or you can sit there and continue to make excuses for why it is that way. You can point to your childhood, you can point to all the reasons why you shouldn't be able to make it. And guess what? You'll be right. You won't be able to make it. Or you can find those reasons to be able to succeed and really understand that you're the one that directs where your life goes. So my life today, I have to pinch myself every day to just, uh, it, it's, uh, it still amazes me to this day that I get to live the life that I live. 
John 21 doesn't happen. I don't know if Peter has the courage to preach the sermon he did in Acts 2 or to go to prison for Jesus like he did throughout the book of Acts. I think John 21, this encounter with Jesus of being restored, filled him with courage to live the rest of his life taking risk after risk for Jesus. Back in 2018, Casey and I got to stand at the shore of the Sea of Galilee where they believed Jesus restored Peter, the story that we've been reading this morning in John 21. And this is a story that's meant a lot to us. My third book was based on this encounter between Jesus and Peter in John chapter 21. And as we stood there, we just read this story, and we weren't even supposed to go to this site. It was Judy Shockley's son-in-law that asked if we could go there, and the tour guide was gracious enough to take us to this place. And it was so moving that when Casey and I went back this year, and the second picture is us from just a couple of months ago standing in that same place. And this time they gave us a little worship, a place where we could worship for about 30 minutes as a group. And Casey did a lot of the teaching that day with our group. But one thing I told them at the very end is I wanted this visual to be something for them that they could have this story in their back pocket for the rest of their lives. And it's the same thing I want for you. You may never go to the Sea of Galilee, but I want John 21 to be a story that you keep so close to you so that when there are the moments in life when you need to be reminded of what God does with failure or what God does when we make mistakes or what God does when we lose our confidence in life, what Jesus did for Peter is what Jesus does for his church. Do you love me? Follow me. And it's the question and the statement that just keeps coming. So today as we go to the table, as some of you, you already have communion with you. If not, we have six tables set up in this room. And these, this question, this statement are going to stay on the screen for you for a few minutes. Just for you to reflect as if Jesus is asking and saying this to you today. Do you love me more than everything else? And as you take the bread and the cup, reflect on the question. And follow me. Today in the bread and the cup, hear the invitation of Jesus all over again. And to a deeper life with him. Brent Patterson one of our shepherds will be up front to receive you during this time. If there's anything that you need, we'll have a shepherd in the back to receive you. But right now, can we bow our heads and close our eyes? And God, as we thank you for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that gives us life. And this morning, as we thank you for the bread and the cup that reminds us every week of your love, your sacrifice, and your desire to reconcile the world to yourself, we just give you thanks. And today, Jesus, whether you shout it or whisper it or it just comes off a screen or off the Bible to us, ask us this question again. For no one knows our hearts better than you. And for people in this room today, there may be some people who just need to hear how you give them a second chance and another chance. And God, I'm asking for anybody who may be in this worship experience today who they have given up on you, God, may they give you a second chance. May this bread and cup nurture us today in the name of Jesus and the whole church said, amen. Feel free to pace yourself whenever you want and move to one of the tables.